Depression is a different thing diagnostically. This is your body's symptomatic response to a traumatic loss. Yeah. And I just, you know, I wrote about it again, sort of as a love letter to my people so that they will, they will understand that we grieve with our bodies, our yeah. human bodies. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you have two master's degrees and like another $100,000 worth of training. Yeah. You are still, you know, going to go through the grief process and it's going to have that impact on your body. And I, you know, again, my mother's, my mother's death was traumatic. And so all the little very well-informed self-care things that can be helpful and can be supportive when you're kind of at a five or a six yeah. did not at all work because I was at a nine. So I'm swimming and I'm walking and I'm trying to eat and I'm, you know, trying to do a little bit of therapy and like, I'm just getting sicker and worse and worse. And ultimately what happens is I become completely immobilized. Welcome back, my friends, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Friends, if you've ever been in therapy, have you wondered about the lives and mental health of your provider? It's okay to be honest. I've definitely wondered that myself. And as someone who's worked as a narrative therapist, clinical social worker, and now grief guide, I often feel some pressure to appear like I have all my shit together. That was especially true in the early days after my husband's death, when I was serving both as a therapist and clinical director of a nonprofit. But the truth is, we can have all the knowledge we need to offer meaningful and helpful support to our clients and fall apart ourselves. I wish having knowledge made us exempt from the challenges and traumas of life, but it simply doesn't. I've certainly used my platform, including this podcast, my keynote addresses, even my own TED Talk, to be honest about the realities of the human behind the mental health professional. That's one of the many reasons I so instantly fell in love with my guest today, Megan Riordan Jarvis. In addition to being a psychotherapist specializing in trauma, grief, and loss, a TEDx speaker, and host of the podcast, Grief is My Side Hustle, Megan has bravely stepped forward to share her humanity too. In her extraordinarily honest and beautiful memoir, End of the Hour, and in our conversation today, she lays bare her experience of PTSD following the deaths of both of her parents within two years of each other. She opens up about her unraveling and the necessary courage it took to check herself into the same inpatient trauma center she had sent clients to over her career. You are going to love Megan's honesty, insight, humor, and more. Everyone, I cannot believe I am saying these words. Welcome, Megan Riordan Jarvis, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Welcome to the show. Round of Oh, my God. I can't believe it myself. I mean, hearing your voice, hearing you say my name when what I have done is listen to you interview like all my heroes. Um, it is such an honor to be here. Such an honor, my friend. I'm so happy you're here. For those of you who are watching clips or watching it um, on video, I'm holding up my copy of her exquisite memoir, End of the Hour, Therapist Memoir. Um, I'm going to drop a link in the show notes. I'll be linking it in my socials. You know, it's coming out. What is the official? I have an advanced copy. 
November fourteenth. So, so by the time this hits the air, you're listening to this. This book is in bookshelves and bookstores near you. It's on in all the places that you can buy books. I'm telling you, I read a lot of memoirs, a lot of books in this space, and I have never ever read anything like this Ugh, memoir. You are truly fine. no, truly. And we're going to explore today. I think it's, of course, it's a part part because of your vulnerability part because of your beautiful writing style and part that you touch on the unpacking of what we call our personalities and their roots in our grief and in our trauma and in our childhood in ways that I've never seen another writer do. I've seen people do it sort of clinically, like this is how we understand attachment or this is how we understand trauma, but I've never seen a writer experienced a writer do it through their own story. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and since you, I'm going to be honest with you all off air, since we're friends, all of us, also because there was so much resonant to my own um, ways in which trauma and grief have shaped me. Um, I, I feel like I had a conversation with you, Megan, the whole time I was reading the book. I was like, <laughs> yes. And yeah, oh, I did that. And I was like talking. I was talking, my dog thought I was talking to her, but I was talking to you mm. as I was reading the book. And I think everyone who picks up this book is going to walk away learning something new about themselves Mm. because we all have had some profound losses, some little T, big T traumas, but also learning something about how we show up, how we might aspire to show up for other people who are taken down by loss and grief. And that's what your book does. Ugh. Such that a gift. Just, ah, I, you know, I, it, I'm, I'm being 100% in earnest when I say like that means so much to me. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know when you're creating something yeah. if it's going to land the way that you want it to land. And in grief and loss, really, it's like you're over here on your island feeling kind of isolated and alone. And you yeah. want, you're, it's like you're throwing out a rope to connect to the rest of the world. And then when someone says, oh, and then I felt that rope connect me to you, like yeah. that, that road helped me. Yeah. I, that, you know, that just means the world to me. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it does. And I'm, I said it in earnest myself. I really, really believe it. I think it's such a profound gift to everybody who's going to pick up this book. Mm, uh, um, I think we're going to learn so much. We share this passion, of course, about, shifting our narratives of grief and being much more open and honest and vulnerable. We do that in sort of clinical ways, but also by sharing our own personal experiences and stories. And part of how I always like to do that, whether it's in the classroom or on this podcast, is to have us unpack sort of where our early grief beliefs came from. So wondering, since you're a listener to the show, you know the questions I'm asking. What What's, what's an early memory of loss and grief that comes to mind? And what do you think you learn subconsciously consciously about what grief you is. know the the memoir covers some things that are sort of like seminal events but when you ask me that question the first thing that i think about is my cat yeah that when i was little we had a cat we grew up on a farm and we had a cat that's name was kit cat that was basically it was white and black white and gray And, you know, we lived on 16 acres of land, sort of, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so our animals were more like animals than they were pets. And Kit Kit Kat got hit by a car. 
and got hit by a car, like by a woman who we really disliked. We made the Wicked Witch of the West noise when she came by. So it was like, it could not possibly. Right. Yes. And, and what's relevant about it is my grandmother was there and my mother's mother, whose name was also Mary. Um, she was a, t- a school teacher and she understood that the six grandchildren all needed individual attention. And so she scheduled like a 30 minute where you would go into her room and she would do this thing that she called a tickle where she'd like gently rub you the inside of your arm with her yeah. nails. And I have no idea what we talked about, but she was deeply, deeply Catholic. And my mother was deeply, deeply Catholic. Yeah. So my grandmother was there. My cat got hit by a car and died. And my, and I think I sat, I mean, I was beside myself because also the cat had been killed by the witch. Yeah. And I said, we'll get to see that cat in heaven. And my grandmother said, animals don't go to heaven. Like, just like that. Like, well, you know, animals don't go to heaven. And what I remember was like, you know, being startled, being terrified that there was no, there was no, she said a lot of other things after that. And I was like, there's no comfort around this. And what I remember about it was I never said anything about that cat again. I just was like, okay, I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. Yeah. This thing that they've been selling me all this time, this religion thing that they've been selling me for all this time, um, isn't going to work. And I have to be able to think of this cat as in some kind of better place that isn't permanently without me. I mean, I was really little. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I have, I have multiple sort of small stories of like searching and reaching for comfort. Yeah. And it just not being paired well, right? Like not attuned. Yeah. My grandmother was so loving. She wasn't trying to make me feel bad. She was literally trying to tell me what she believed was the doctrine of the Bible. Yeah. Animals are not going to be there. And you need to know that more than you need comfort. Yeah. And, and again, like my grandmother, I think was a different mother to my mother than she was a grandmother. I think she was much softer as a grandmother than she was ever able to be as a mother to my mother. But every once in a while, I would see the thing that my mom would describe about my grandmother being kind of like harsh and hard. And in this instance, I mean, I, I, I think about it all the time and I'm like, oh lady, did you have to say that? Like there were a lot of things you could have said in that moment. Yeah. That, not the most helpful one of yeah. the things you could have said. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And we probably will touch on some of the more seminal events too, but I appreciate you sharing that. As I've said this before, when guests have shared about pet loss, one of the many forms of loss, I think we don't do enough, uh, give enough attention yeah. to or validate because we try to do that grief thiefing thing where we try to compare, yeah. you know, the worthiness of some grief experiences. But especially for a child, a, a pet is, is there's an attachment yeah. and there's a, um, a reciprocity to, you know, that relationship that is so profound. And our grief is really around, you know, that at- powerful attachment being yeah. broken. And so I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. I mean, I told my dog things who also, yeah. you know, who passed young when I was young things that I didn't tell my parents. Yeah, sure. Sure. You know, like, yeah, 
She was a Bassett Beagle mix, so I had long ears. So I would like lift up her ears and whisper things into oh my God. her ears oh to tell God. her, you know, all my hard feelings and things right. that I was going through. So right. yeah, I think pet loss, and not just for kids, by the way. I was devastated oh, no, a few 100%. years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Pet loss is, is can be profound whenever. So yeah, so I appreciate you saying that. And also just the ways in which the people who show up and as I say, say stupid shit to us in our grief yeah. are rarely doing it out of malice. No, never. Mary it's was just, not doing that out of malice. No, definitely not. Often they it's do it because just out of attunement. Sometimes it's because they're trying to make themselves feel better in a way, yeah. you know, by saying it. But so it's important for us to unpack these kind of lessons or grief beliefs that we've learned, not in a way so that we can go back and come up with the litany of reasons our parents or grandparents screwed us over, yeah. but in this way so that we can be like, okay, do I want to believe that? Do I want to do something different? How do I show up? That's right. That's right. That's you know, exactly right. Which is why, by the way, our grandparents get to be different kinds of caregivers for us than they did to their parents because they learn stuff over time. Totally. Know? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, if my daughter decides to have children, I'm going to be a, definitely a better grandmother than I was a mother yeah. <laughs> or am a mother. I am imagining, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, I think your point is important, which is people are trying to show yeah. up. And the thing that I talk about, it's in the memoir a little bit, is, um, you know, being able to let people know when they're accidentally stepping on your foot and they yeah. think they're just standing there. They don't know, right? Yeah. That they're harming you or hurting you. And I don't, I couldn't have done that as a little kid, of but I do not. do it as an adult. Yes. Now. Yeah. That when people, my dog, my dog, Winston, who's a chocolate lab, he ate grapes the other day, mm. which are toxic. Yeah. And my husband was in Italy and it was like seven o'clock. So I had to take him to the emergency room and I text because one of the things that I know to do as a person who lives with some PTSD is like, do not be in a hard moment alone, right? Yeah. Like, don't do it. Yeah. So I have, you know, probably five people who kind of know, like, I may text you and there's nothing for you to do. I just need you to know that this is going on. And so I texted three different people, like the stupid dog, you know, ate yeah. the, and I'm terrified. And I, re I really was terrified that because he yeah. ate, he ate a lot of grapes and I yeah. didn't know what was going to happen. And one of my one of the people that I texted wrote back like I'm okay, I'll say some prayers. And I was like, "Prayers? That's not going to help me." Yeah. And then another person that I texted was like, "You know, call me. I can help you get there. I can find out, you know, let me look up on the internet." And I was like, "I don't I don't need your executive functioning." Yeah. And then the third person said like, "That stupid fucking dog." And I was like, "Yep, that's it. That's what I needed." What I needed was just like, what a hassle. Yeah. You, of course you're afraid, but also this is wildly inconvenient at dinner time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's part of what I've learned is like, you don't need to fold inward when you feel alone. You can keep reaching outward. Yeah. You don't need to, def you know, yeah. it's hard to reach out and say Oof. to somebody like, I need comfort right now. Yeah. And when they don't comfort you, you don't, that's just the first bid. Like, yeah. you don't have to t accept it. Yeah. But there are other ways. Yeah. And in that moment, I thought, wow, you know, I'm doing this moment differently than I have in the past. And, you know, even the people who said the other things, I was like, nah, that's not what I need you to say. Like, you know, yeah. you, you didn't, you're not the one. Yeah. Wrong I wasn't answer. saying it to, to, to shame them. I was just sort of like, you know, yeah. maybe that would have helped in a different moment. But right now I need to hear, like, yeah. Megan, why did you even get a dog? Yeah. That's what I need to hear. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. I so appreciate that. There's a couple of things that you unpacked there that I, or you started to unpack there that I think dive beautifully into um, your memoir, but I want to also help people understand kind of who you are in the world professionally and personally before we kind of dive into your story. But you know, you said something there, and I think this is true of whether we're grieving or we're grieving with some level of PTSD or complex PTSD, which is, um, the importance of finding safe places to stay tethered to the world totally, and that reaching out thing that the help isn't always about the help. Like I'll drive you, I'll take you, I'll do the thing. The help is reminding is, is being an anchor. That's right. Being a safe anchor or a tether in the world because trauma or even just, you know, intense emotions, profound, intense grief emotions can have us so untethered from ourselves and the world. Right. Um, yeah, and yeah. that's really scary. And also, you can't always make great decisions in those moments. Like yeah. you need to, just like a child needs to lean on the mind of an adult to yeah. have, because it doesn't have the intellect to imagine other things. When we're in trauma, we sometimes need to hear yeah. from other people who have better functioning minds than yeah. us in that moment. Right. Well, because our prefrontal cortex is like, bye. Right. See ya. <laughs> Close down. This shop is Close no longer business. Open. We are working with our monkey brain only. Thank you very much. Which doesn't always make great decisions. So I think folks who are not already following Megan, who don't know about her amazing podcast, Grief is your side, is my side hustle. Um, you might not know that you are a grief and trauma therapist, right? Is that how you would categorize yourself? And so here you are somebody who has spent a career working with people in all forms of grief. Remind me where you first, what was your first kind of work setting? How did you start out? Yeah. So I went straight into private practice after I got out of school. So I I worked in an emergency room. I worked in a homeless clinic, but the minute I had enough hours to put out my own shingle, I went straight into private practice. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So you've been working and with people who've experienced grief and trauma all these years, you've now put out this very personal memoir that shares, of course, some composite stories, but also your very deeply personal stories of grief and loss and trauma. Um, Before we dive into sort of the stories, I'm wondering as you sit here in this interview now with your book, you know, previewing and ready to come on shelves, just any reflections you have about that this turn of events about this bravery, would you call it bravery, Mm -hmm. this gift that you're giving us about being both the professional having been on this side of the chair, but then also letting us inside to see that you've been on the other side too. God, that's such a good question, Lisa. I, you know, when I, when I was sitting after I had sort of like written my heart out onto pages, which is how the book started. It was just, it was me writing letters to my mom. It was, you know, a lot of the disrupted sleep. My central nervous system was dysregulated. I mean, I, it's still dysregulated. Um, so I'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and, you know, that's kind of like this liminal time and I would have these words and I feel like I needed to write them down. Um, and then it just sort of felt like, okay, now it's out of me, right? Like the energy is sort of out of me. And that was the process part. And then the product part was more like, I mean, honestly, I, I, I have said this a couple of times, kind of like a love letter to all the people that I have sat with. 
in 20 years of work, I deliberately, when I was working with my first editor, pulled every story, every one of my personal vignettes that matched a story I'd heard from a client. Yeah. You know, like the story, there's a chapter in there where I get really angry at my husband, like irrationally angry. And I've heard that story from clients so many times that there's, you know, I get really inappropriately hysterical in the funeral home. I've heard that story yeah. from clients so many times. So I really wanted people to feel the like circle, right? Like, yeah, yeah I have, I have read all the books. I have <laughs> yeah. worked with the most complicated cases. It's a little bit like really being a, a scholar of France knowing yeah. everything, the topography, all, you know, yeah. all the languages that are spoken and all its history. And then going there for the first time and being like, oh my God, the salted butter on the bread. Like I had no idea. Yeah. The five senses experience of being traumatized by grief yeah. was such a, I like, I don't exactly mean this, but it, it was such a gift yeah. to my deeper understanding of like, both what we do and don't do well. And also an, I, what I have come out sort of saying, which is, I think we're, I think every conversation we're ever having is kind of about grief and yes. about love actually. Yep. Um. So, so I think when I look at it, like when I was in treatment, one of the clinicians said to me, like, you know, there, you could look at this, the fact that you had to check yourself into an inpatient facility as a declaration of profound love for your mother. And I was like, no, that's not what this is. Like my mother would not have wanted to be loved this way. I would not want it. And she would not be at all okay with where I am right now. And when I say that, I mean like she'd be mad, not yeah. like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. She'd be yeah. like, pick yourself up and pull yourself together. Um, But I do, I do really feel both incredibly proud of checking myself into a facility and talking about that that I have no shame about that, that I actually have incredible amount of pride yeah. that I took care of myself and that ultimately really I had to make that decision for myself. Nobody was better equipped yeah. to make that decision for me than me, both academically, but also just process wise. Yeah. I, I knew what I needed to do. And I really deeply understand that there is a difference between grief that get, makes you sick yeah. and grief that is hard to bear. And so I really wanted people to see my experience with my dad's death, yeah. which was manageable. It was that's sad. Great. That's hard awful. to bear. Yeah. It was hard to bear. It was sad. It was difficult. But with the resources around me, just regular therapy, my friends, my family, you know, I had nightmares after my dad died. I didn't eat, you know, but it all abated. Yeah. And I really wanted to juxtapose that because the part that is hard is that when people feel criticized, when they're like, you know, everybody's waiting for me to go back to normal. It's because there is no standard amount of knowledge yeah. about what it's, what someone is supposed to be doing and what is healthy grieving and how long it does take and what it should look like. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing is no one around me knew that I was traumatized, except really my husband and my best friend. Yeah. My best friend was like, you don't smell right. Something's wrong. Yeah. And I was mad about that. I was like, leave me the frick alone. I'm yeah. doing the best I can. But everybody else was sort of like, yeah, you know, you have clothes on. You took a shower. You're, you must be doing okay. And I was not doing okay. Yeah. And I think the fact that people do not know the difference, right? Like when you think about addiction, 
Yeah. It's not difficult to go to a party and be like, I think that person might have trouble with alcohol. Just yeah. like based on what I'm seeing. Yeah. That doesn't look like the average relationship with alcohol. But we don't have a threshold around grief and loss. Yeah. And people say things like, well, they're really depressed. I had a friend say that to me, like, you're depression. I was like, I'm not depressed. I'm grieving. Yeah. She was like, well, you know, all the symptoms. And I was like, I'm, I am, I will not accept that. I am not depressed. Like, I understand that there's some crossover. Yeah. But depression comes from nowhere. These right. symptoms that you're seeing come from loss. Yeah. Yeah. From, from so I really wanted people to feel like they had just like a little bit of a better handle on what does the difference look like? When do we need treatment? Why might we need treatment? Like why? Yeah. And I've written a clinical book, so it's almost like a partner to the to the um the memoir. The memoir is my personal experience of all the things. And then in the clinical book, it's just like all the anecdotal examples of all the things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I so appreciate you saying that. And also you're sort of revealing that um writing this memoir and being so boldly honest and vulnerable and showing all the the good, the bad, the ugly of what it means to walk through, you know, sort of, I don't know, traditional grief or grief and then yeah. grief that is traumatizing, that grief opens up, you know, past traumas and the and the willingness that you had to recognize and the capacity you had, frankly, to recognize I need something more than outpatient. Yeah. Therapy. I need to go inpatient. Even when you're a therapist who's placed people in facilities like this before, yeah. I think it's such a good, and to do all of that, your reflection, I guess, is what I was going to say that to do all of that and not feel the sense of shame, but to feel sort of pride, both in your own capacity to show up for yourself in that way, but also to me as the reader you're gifting us in the world this example of actually getting help and going through healing is something that we want to celebrate more. We like to celebrate the shiny end thing. Yeah. Like, and they're better now and they're a success now and they're the a, Oprah fat pants. That's you what, know I, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Oprah fat yeah. pants kind of scenario. But what you did in this memoir was, you know, show um, really all the, the muck, you know, that happens to us. And I want to dive into sort of the embodiment of trauma in terms of sickness and the decision yeah. to go through. But for those who haven't read your memoir yet, just to help us understand sort of like these pivotal moments that looked like, you know, I'm thinking about the, the accident that happened to the young girl when yeah. you were young yeah, and, you know, your father's death and, you know, your mother's, it's like, just help us kind of orient to, yeah. What led up to this culmination of a therapist checking herself into an inpatient trauma treatment center? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you know, the book sort of follows an arc of that is like timeline wise. So yeah. I start with me as a child and I talk about this, you know, horrific event that happened in my very small town where I spend um, my summers where my parents ultimately moved to on Cape Cod. There was a drowning so my family was on the beach and this teenager who was beloved by, you know, everyone was my sailing instructor, went in the water and didn't come out. And, um, and my older brother found the body in the water and my mother watched, um, that, you know, the rescuers and everything remove the body from the water. And it, it 
lived inside my family in silence. And so mm-hmm. like it just lived there. There was it was like breathing in the corner, like heavy breathing. And my mother had PTSD from what she saw, which we didn't really talk about until much later, but I I knew. I I knew what what she was experiencing. She she really um she had images that she could not shake. Yeah. But we didn't, as a family, end up having to talk about it because it happened in a summer community. And then we went back to our regular scheduled fall yeah. and nobody there knew what happened. Mm. And so it was so confusing to me to have something be like the worst thing that had ever happened to anyone. And I was very good friends and still am actually. My best friend, Maya, who's in the book, yeah. it was I, I had to sort of strip it back, but Maya, who has been my best friend since I was 11, was the person who died's cousin. Um, it was very confusing to me how it could be so important and also not important to talk about. Yeah. Like, like we're, we're never going to talk about it. And what then happens, which doesn't really work in the timeline, but when, by the time I was a young adult and I was going through kind of my first real heartbreak, I was really aware that other people seemed to bounce back from stuff much faster than I did. Yeah. Or that it didn't land in their system or on their heart in a way that made them believe something bad about themselves. And so I walked around in my life for my whole life feeling like the negative exception to a rule and Mm -hmm. always trying to, all I wanted to do was like be in the middle of the crowd wearing the right clothes and seem normal. And when I walked into my first therapist office, she started asking me questions. And then she said to me, you know, many, many people who have unresolved trauma from their childhood feel the way you feel. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah. I thought like I was just the bad example of a human. Mm. And then she introduced me to some of those people. I did group therapy with them. And it was just this like, oh, you know, kind of the title to Oprah's book. Like, this isn't about who I am. This is about what happened. Yeah. So there's this seminal childhood event yeah. that just sort of defines all the anxiety in my life. Yeah. For I want to pause for a minute and repeat what you just said. This isn't about who I am. This is about what happened. Yeah. And I yeah. think for many of us who are unpacking years later, trauma, unresolved trauma, whether it's attachment wounds or, you know, emotional wounds or event trauma, I think that's such an important thing for us to recognize. Yeah. The challenge is it becomes in a way who we are because it shapes how we operate in the world. So then it's even trickier to pull apart the innateness of who we are versus like what the trauma response was in our body. Anyways, I just wanted to pause there because I think for me, I know for sure that so many of my listeners are either have already been through working on their trauma or just starting to unpack that. And, and that kind of not fitting in that kind of, anxiety that that you're about starting to talk about is so common for those of us. Yeah, right. When we come back, Megan shares more of what she learned about the impact of childhood trauma on her ability to cope with loss and the way it interfered with her capacity to receive support. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Friends, I'm focusing on three C's in 2024, 
And no, not the C cancer. That C I've been enduring all of 2023. My focus for 2024 is these three C's, connection, collaboration, and celebration. Why am I telling you that? Well, my friend, that's because I want to connect and celebrate with you this year. As I've shared in previous episodes, my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, is now available for pre-order. Seriously, this still gives me the chills every time I say it. As a first-time author, I'm learning that pre-orders of the book are really important to show bookstores, which happens to be my favorite place to hang out, and my publisher, that the shelves need to be stocked fully when the book drops June 4th. So I realize this is a perfect opportunity to rock two of the C's I'm focusing on in 2024, connect and celebrate. On May 22nd, which also happens to be my birthday, I'm hosting a book launch party celebration, and I'd love to have you join me. After the show, all you need to do is visit your favorite online bookseller like bookshop.org, Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com and pre-order a copy of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an uncensored guide to navigating loss. Then make sure you're following me on Instagram at Lisa Kefauver MSW. That's Lisa K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R-M-S-W. And drop me a DM there to let me know you pre-ordered your copy and I'll share the party invite link with you. I can't wait to meet you, to thank you for supporting the show and, of course, the book, answer questions about the book, dish about behind the scenes of the podcast, and more. And, of course, just take some time to celebrate our lives together. Plus, I've invited a very special guest to join me as co-host. I can't wait to share that reveal with you soon. So after you've pre-ordered your copy of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch on your favorite online bookseller, don't forget to message me on Insta that you did. I'll send you the party invite link and the first of my many thank yous for your support. I know it's just a Zoom party, but I think I'm going to get dressed up in something fun and festive. How about you? Would you like to stay in touch with me off the air? I know I'd love to connect with you more for sure. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind-the-scenes content from the pod. Maybe you'd like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. So here are a few quick ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefauver.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E. F-A-U-V-E-R dot com forward slash newsletter. Just in case you're curious, it's called that because like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'm doing my best to post at grief as a sneaky bitch on Instagram too. We'll see how that goes this season. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, my work as a grief activist, and of course, my forthcoming book. And third, you know the drill by now. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. So, 
so, I mean, that literally, I remember her saying like, well, the, your behavior is a hallmark of someone with unresolved childhood trauma. Yeah. And me being like, wait, what? Like, you know, like somebody's saying like, you have an underlying infection. That's why your yeah. hair is like it is. Yeah. And you're like, right. wait, what? Yeah. Like, and there's, there's a medicine for that. Like I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. And so then this therapist, you know, I'd be like, well, and then I did this or like, I remember saying one time, like, oh, something's going on at home. So I'm going to go home for the weekend. Yeah. And she was like, wait, I'm sorry. I don't understand. Why are you going home for the weekend? And I was like, well, cause there's problems at home, whatever it was, like somebody needs help yeah. or something. And she was like, do you want to go home? And I was like, I, that didn't I? I don't know. I don't even know what how to kind of question, that question is that. You just, you just go home when this is happening, and she was like, "Or you could not go home." And I remember like being like, "Lady, what is wrong with you? I have to." Those aren't the rules so that operate were, in my head. Yeah. So, so really, it was like I mean, I remember her saying one time, like, "There's a lot of rules inside this country club that you used to belong to, mm-hmm. that you are still espousing and living by, and like." If you're going to do that, you might as well just live in the country club. If you're not, you should probably build your own country club with its own rules. And it was just, I know, right? So it was, she was an extraordinary therapist who seemed to believe so many of the good things about myself that I wanted to believe that I Mm -hmm. hoped were true. Yeah. And so she just had me taking a lot of risk. And I, you know, again, one of the hallmarks of childhood trauma is that you don't take a lot of risk because why in the world would you? Yeah. Because, you know, that why would you add the possibility of something bad happening when you could just live with like the milk toast medium of whatever it is that you're doing right now? So, so that, that sort of sets up my young adult life. And a lot of what you see in the memoir is me you know, going and, and building a life that I believe is filled with all the things that I want. And then my dad was diagnosed with small cell cancer, which is lethal. Yeah. And it was an interesting thing inside my family because there's a lot of us. Yeah. You have five siblings, right? Yeah. 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 And not, and my dad didn't have, does, did not have a great relationship with every one of them. And, and that was something, honestly, he had earned. Yeah. And so there wasn't like a party line, like, oh, we're all Democrats and this is what the leader of the Democrats say. Like yeah. there, what, there wasn't. And so I really had to sit down with my husband and say, like, how do I want to show up for this? And it was like the easiest part of our relationship. He was dying and I just wanted him to know I loved him. And so I did that by showing up, by going. Yeah. yeah. And I asked my family to hold that. You know, is it okay if I'm away for the weekend? So what's interesting, and there's an undercurrent of it in the memoir, but it really began the shift sort of in my marriage where like I had been kind of the primary parent. My husband did a lot of traveling. When my dad was dying, he just kind of pulled back on some of that yeah. and did more of the like weekend soccer stuff. Yeah. Um, And then my dad died, which was very sad um, and hard. And I think devastating for my mom. I think she didn't, you know, they had been married 50 years and I can't imagine how you are supposed to reinvent yourself. And then my mom and I took a trip together. Um, It was the first trip she took after my dad died. Well, she had been out to see a, a granddaughter graduate in Seattle and she had a stomach bug. And, you know, this is some of my favorite writing in the book because it's the last time I spent with my mom where she was really alive. Yeah. Um, 
but she was not well. And our conversations that we had there, there's a scene that's not in the book where like we're driving somewhere and I start asking her about distant relatives. And even as I'm asking her about distant relatives, I'm like, why am I asking her these questions? So I do think energetically, both she and I knew something was amok or yeah. not quite yeah. right. Um, and then I came back from, we were in Maine for that trip and I came back and she came back and then I went to her house with my kids as I do every summer and 10 days into that trip, she died in her sleep. Yeah. And it was from the moment, you know, it's a pretty powerful part of the book, um, her death, because again, there's a lot of energy in the, in the system. There's a lot of, mm -hmm. um, my son seemed to know that something was wrong. I certainly knew that something was wrong. Um, but there's a lot of energy also because there's a moment where I'm with the kids. I've just learned my mom died, which I knew, but my husband sort of says it to me. And there's this like still point moment where I understand that I'm not okay, that I need help ruminations come and I immediately I'm like, oh, it's my fault. She died. I didn't take good enough care of her. Yeah. And I have to decide, am I going to like let people come and help me in this moment or this minivan full of kids? Am I going to make sure they get driven where they need to go? And that's the choice I make. The choice I make in that moment is to take care of them. Yeah. And that really is the root of how I start to get sick is mm -hmm. that I immediately chose not to be present for myself and my own experience and my own devastation. Yeah. And instead sort of put on the apron of like, I'm going to tidy up for everybody else. And I, and by the time I took it off, because there was nothing else to tidy up, I was totally lost. I just had no idea who I was or what the world was or what I was even doing there. Yeah. And I, I write about that because I write about that one because it happened two because I have worked with so many people where that was their experience with loss is they lost their compass. They lost their understanding of how to move forward and it's recidivism. It is me now as the adult sort of perpetrating the, the silence yeah. and not showing up emotionally yeah. for what I what I know I need, which is comfort and care in, in those moments. Yeah. You needed, you needed someone to tell you, to hold you and let you know you're going to be safe and to. Yeah. 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 And, and even, I mean, I write about it a lot. Even when people tried to do that, I would not let yeah. them. Yeah. I would not let them. Yeah. Um, I just could not be comforted. I could not be soothed. I really wanted, I really wanted people to like, just leave me on the side of the road. Yeah. To just let me be by myself to either survive or die. Yeah. But I did not, um, I couldn't see a world in which the people around me weren't going to be anything but pulled down yeah. by me. Just taking a moment because I've, this just resonates so deeply for me. I think I can imagine for so many listeners, but. I'm thinking of a way to ask this question or just as invitation, which is, do you feel that you, that that version of you, that Megan couldn't imagine a world that somebody was capable of comforting her in the wake of 
now being, you know, an orphan. Because little Megan never experienced comfort in that you way. You know, I, you guys will, if you read the book, you will be introduced to my husband, who is my favorite person yeah. in the world. And I, we've been married 20 years. I'm like not even a little bit sick of him. Yeah. Um, I don't actually think that's it. Okay. Like I yeah. think I knew as an adult, I, I, I mean, I, my husband would do anything. Yeah you know, for me, um, my best friend would do anything for yeah. me. And this isn't the first time that either of them have had to do have, yeah. you know, my sister. I think it was honestly, if I don't sweep the floor, then I'm going to have to sit here and feel what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I don't actively move to support other people and yeah. do things, yeah. then what I will be faced with is a life I have no idea how to live. Yeah. And that because feels like too I, much. It's just impossible. Yeah. Just impossible. I mean, every single, you know, even now when I'm like, I have lived four and a half years without my mother. Yeah. I, I, I say that out loud and I'm like, how is that possible? Like, I, I don't even that. understand how I've lived one day without her. Like, yeah. how is that possible? Oh, that makes me emotional. Oh, yeah. But I, but I think in that moment, I just, it was my form of running, right? Yeah. Like fight, flight, yeah. freeze. Yes. Yeah. I was fleeing the scene yeah. of, I couldn't, you can't fight against death. I mean, maybe you can. I know that people yell and they kick yeah. and they scream. But really, I just was running, you know, trying to not have to do what ultimately everyone has to do, which is yeah. figure out a way to live on the world in this world yeah. without that person. And, you know, I think when I say that people are like, that's because you loved your mother so much. And here's the thing. I loved my mother so much, Yeah, but also we were pains in the ass to each other. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I mean, I try to write about it is she just had a lot of influence on how I lived my life, pleasing her and wanting her to be proud of me um, was important to me, even though I didn't want it to be important to me. So I have this moment, I can't remember if it's in this book or in a different piece of writing where I'm talking, I'm like looking around my house and I'm like, do I like this paint or yeah. did I did, do I, do I like this stuff? Yeah. Did I buy this? Did I paint this house and do that wallpaper for me or because I thought my mom would like it? And so there is this thread, which again is trauma related, which is really about codependency, yeah. right? And code is go, codependency, not in a like, oh, I'm enabling you to drink, which is right. how I think a lot of people think about it. Codependency in the way that I keep myself safe is focusing on other people's needs rather than my own. Yeah. And so when people say to me, I mean, this still happens to me. My kids will be like, mom, where do you want to order? Yeah. And like, what do you want to eat, mom? What do you want to eat? And mm -hmm. I don't answer that question. I think, well, what is the, what restaurant's really busy? Who else is going to be in the house and what do they eat? I don't answer the question of like, I would like Chinese food. Yeah. I more yeah. do all the math of what is possible. Yeah. And what would please other people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 People pleasing, but codependency is like almost people pleasing on steroids. Codependency yeah. is 
my everything about my wagon is impacted by how your wagon is riding. Yeah. Because they're tethered together. People pleasing is a little bit like, I just want you to be happy and then you'll go to your house and I'll go to my house. Yeah. Codependency is we are going back to the same house, whether it's, you know, figurative or literal. Yeah. How you live and how I live are intertwined. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I I do think both because my mom had a lot of kids, she mostly raised us by herself. And because I was really aware of how impacted she was by that death. And um, I just wasn't sure that our family was going to be okay. I was like, great, I'll, I'll take on the job of being, you know, a second mom. And I, I'm really careful in the book not to talk from my siblings' experiences yeah. or about yeah. their experiences. Yeah. In fact, I don't even use their names. But I do want to say, like, I am not trying to say that that is unique to me. There are yeah. other people in the family who also took on roles as helpers, also felt exactly as I felt. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you helping us understand that that, that the profound unearthing or, you know, disorientation that you felt of your mother's loss wasn't just because of the profound love. Because I think we get confused when we think about... um the intense emotions we often feel when we lose somebody who we are disconnected from or estranged from, or we have a complicated right. relationship with, because so many things about our, how we've operated in the world, how we show up in the world, as you said, who, whose wagon we've hitched ourselves to, even if it's not a pleasant experience, even if it's not a pleasant relationship, that's right. that is gets lost when that person dies too, yeah, which means a part, right. when they say a part of you dies, yeah, it's real. Yeah. A part of you dies. And then what an existential crisis to be faced yeah. with. And then how do I operate in this world? How do I meet, imagine a world, you know, without them? And so, yeah, that survival instinct of like, I'm just going to yeah. be the survivor, keep busy doing. Yeah. And then it makes a know. lot of sense. Ex yes. And like, thank you, <laughs> system, for helping me survive. And yes wow, now we've crashed into the wall. And then talk about that because you talk about, you know, you move from like, I'm just going to get these kids in the minivan, like literally the, you know, the moment you got the notice to a safe place, but you just kept going. Yeah. And our emotions and our trauma will find us. Yes. And tell us a yeah, little bit it, about what happened in the physicality, the sickness. You no, know, I do. I I want to. I want to say that pe that part of the writing right after my mom dies, and I um we have the her funeral. You know, I'm functioning. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And then we're leaving. We're leaving her house, and we're leaving the town, and we're leaving the space. And what I what I will say is, I knew that was not going to be okay for me. And I think that's important. Like I knew instinctively mm -hmm. that if I left when I left, I was not going to be okay. And you I did had listen to, to that. Yeah. Well, there was no option yeah. to stick. Yeah. Right. So, and I think that's important because I work with people who like, they have to sell their mother's house. Yeah. And so they have to donate all the things and they know as they're doing it, that it is not okay yeah. and that they're going to regret it and that it's going to be a problem. And that's real. Part of how we end up having to navigate grief is outside of our, you know, control and therefore what our central nervous system can handle. Yeah. But that piece of writing is some of the writing I'm the most proud of because when I went to write the book, I couldn't even remember 
what happened. I couldn't remember driving home because there's a lot of, you know, cognitive problems when your body is trying to protect you yeah. from being overwhelmed. Yeah. And I, and I talked to on my podcast, I talked to Dr. Lisa Solman, who's a, um, she's a neuroscientist and she said, keep writing. The yeah. memories are there. You live that life. They will come. And that's exactly what happened. When we come back, Megan shares how her body freezing up was the final wake-up call she needed to stop and get real help. Megan explains the experience of checking herself into the intensive inpatient treatment program she often refers patients to and the incredible insights she gained in the time she spent there. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer, and you're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. You may or may not know that I show up in person and online in many more places besides in your podcast feed each week. In addition to the keynote addresses and workplace trainings I offer, I've had the honor of leading a series of online grief workshops recently with a community of grievers just like you. In fact, the folks that have shown up for the first two workshops were all listeners to the show. If you're looking for an intimate online gathering space to feel seen and heard in your grief, to learn and practice the skills that will make navigating grief just a little bit easier, join me for one or more of my upcoming workshops in the Reimagining Grief Together online series. You can learn more and sign up at the link in the show notes or head to lisakiefover.com today after the show. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. Friends, I'm excited to share something. This new season of the podcast, season five, I'll be dropping episodes weekly. Yes, you heard me correctly. New episodes will drop each week. So make sure that you're follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode when it drops. If you're not sure how to do that, you simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate every one of you for listening, subscribing, and sharing the show. And one day I woke up and I, it was like my system was safe to go back to the, and I, my experience with it was like, oh my God, I was so unwell. Mm. And so it was really hard. The compassionate adult in me, I was, it was really hard to write how, how all the adrenaline fell out of my body, how I couldn't, I didn't, wasn't able to like physically hold my torso up that, you know, I was panicking. I was having this unbelievable panic attacks. Um, I mean, that was that it's hard to remember. It's pretty traumatizing to remember. And, um, and that, that is a thing that I have seen with people, right? So my clients often come in you know, with a similar story that they don't know why they couldn't get out of bed for 18 days or take a shower. Yeah. And they'll say things like, oh, it was depression. And it's not depression. Depression is a different thing diagnostically. This is your body's symptomatic response to a traumatic loss. Yeah. 
And I just, you know, I wrote about it again, sort of as a love letter to my people so that they will, they will understand that we grieve with our bodies, our yeah. human bodies. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you have two master's degrees and like another hundred thousand dollars worth of training. Yeah. You are still, you know, going to go through the grief process and it's going to have that impact on your body. And I, you know, again, my mother's, my mother's death was traumatic. And so all the little, very well-informed self-care things that can, that can be helpful and can be supportive when you're kind of at a five or a six did not at all work because I was at a nine. Yeah. So I'm swimming and I'm walking and I'm trying to eat and I'm, you know, trying to do a little bit of therapy and like, I'm just getting sicker and worse and worse. And ultimately what happens is I become completely immobilized. I throw my back out so significantly that I'm on the floor in the basement for days. I I remember for days for days. And I can't, I can't even get up and use the bathroom. I mean, I'm just completely, I'm, and it's at that point. Well, it's at the point when I hear my daughter say to a friend who has stopped. Yeah. Oh, this passage. Right. And that, and it's, it, it, it was such an important moment because I am very aware from my own therapy, how often I was trying to help my mom as a child even though you can't help an adult really when you're done. Yeah, yeah. But my daughter, you know, the doorbell rang. I was downstairs. I was kind of like doped out on painkillers. And I, her friend's like, hey, you want to come out and play? It's just about to be the beginning of the school year or, or, you know, the school had just started. And she pauses and says like, you know, my mom might need me. So I think I should stay here. And I burst into tears and was uh-uh. like, nope, no, nope. no way. Absolutely no way. And, We're not repeating. And, you know, yeah. we talked a minute ago about like, I don't have any shame about checking myself into the facility, which is totally true. It's yeah. one of the, it may be the thing I'm the most proud of in my life, but I had a lot of shame yeah. in those moments about how I could, you know, even now when I talk to clients or podcast guests and they're like, look, it wasn't an option for me to not function because I had kids. Yeah. You know, I do kind of fold in on myself and I'm like, well, it wasn't really an option for me because I have three kids too, but I couldn't stop it. Yeah. I couldn't like will myself to function. My body would not have it. And I was totally immobilized. So there was in those moments in my worst, you know, on the, on the basement floor moment, I did have a lot of self-loathing and a lot of, um, shame about just how, how, what a big hit I had taken, even though I was a clinician and even though yeah. I had all this therapy under my belt. Yeah. Oh, I think that's the, I think that's such a challenge. I mean, I still think about that. All the, I was a clinical director of a big nonprofit yeah. when my husband died right. and I still didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know, I would say to that version of, of Megan and to all the listeners who've maybe didn't get to the point of throwing their back out and becoming immobile, but who felt is that functional, how we're functioning in the wake of loss is a real big spectrum. Yeah. Like I was showing up and taking my daughter to school. Was I even present in my own body? Was I attending? Like there are ways in which I look back at my own parenting and early grief and definitely feel a lot of regret. You know, I, I, I didn't even, I thought I was functioning. Well, what's you interesting, know, like I thought I was like, yeah. I had it together. And when I look back, I'm like, oh, no, man. What's interesting now is, you know, I, I use a lot of parts work, IFS, yes, yes. Um, Dick Schwartz work. And 
what's interesting now is I think my body knew me well enough yeah. to know that I was not going to stop. Yeah. It was I like, was gonna you see. need to pay attention. And it was like, oh no, oh no, sweetheart. Oh no. We will, I am going to take you down. Like I, I rang the bell and then I knocked on the door and then I went around the back. Yeah. And now I'm breaking in the house. Yeah. So now the way that I feel about the fact that I became so physically immobilized yeah. is like grateful. Yeah. The same way that I, you know, I have this huge fight with my best friend, which actually was, was the part of the book I was the most worried about when I was yeah. it out to people reading. I really wanted to make sure that she didn't feel hurt by that chapter. And it turned out to be very much the opposite. It actually sort of like resolved some things that we hadn't maybe been totally able to resolve in getting the friendship sort of back on track. But I had this really big fight with my best friend because she insisted on seeing what I did not want to be seen. Yeah. She insisted, even though I was like, stop it. I am okay. She was like, the hell you are. <laughs> and I feel like she was saying that to me. And my body was like, uh-uh, you are not going up those stairs. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I sort of feel about my body the way I do about my best friend. Like that's a tough way to be loved. Yeah. But it's important. So important. So yeah. important. So here you are at this crossroads. You've built this career as a grief therapist, as trauma therapist, and you've experienced a traumatic response to this profound loss. Yeah. Um, and you recognize. Yeah. Because as you said, first the knocking and then the ringing and then they're around the door, your body was like, enough. 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 You knew about this foundations, I think it's called in Tennessee, yeah. this trauma, yeah. trauma inpatient treatment, you kind of go through and share in your story. There's a lot of, of course, it's financially ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And you have all these conversations with Mike and who turned out to your husband, Mike, who turned out to have borrowed some money, but said, I got it. We're covered. And there you walk in. Yeah walk into this trauma treatment center, a place where you've sent many of your, maybe not that specific place, but you've. No, no, that was it. I only use one place. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's the place. And, yep. and when you, I want folks to read the book. So we're, we won't give away all so We won't spill all the tea here, but when you think about your time there, which was three weeks, three weeks, three yep. weeks. Yeah. Which um, is very short, which is short. Sorry, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 When you think about your time there, are there some, are there some pivotal moments? I mean, I, there's so many things. I wish I, I wanted to read so many books, but there are there. I don't remember if this wisdom came from there or somewhere else. But the this is this is not a problem. This is just different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That expression really was. I underlined and sticky noted and tabbed that yeah. one for sure as a given mm. to myself. But when you think yeah. about your time there, was there? You know, I think so there's a scene which I'll let people read, but there's a scene where like I think I'm doing great. Yeah. You know, I I'm attacking a task, you know, everything and you know, you spent your everything about living inside a trauma facility, it like everything is therapeutic. There's not yeah. one minute where there isn't even driving from the airport. Exactly. It is yeah. therapeutic. The I, yeah. The even even a trip to Target. Um and so I think, you know, oh, I'm doing better. Here I am. I'm functioning. I'm getting something done. Yeah. And one of the clinicians turns to me and says, hey, so are you working on codependency? Because I had really significantly overfunctioned. 
during a group event. Yes. And I, what I think I didn't ever fully catch in my early treatment, in my early therapy, was really what codependency meant. Yeah. And, and the function that it served. It's not just because other people around you aren't functioning well. It's then you just get to be watercolor. You don't have to come out as for or against anything. You don't have to plant a stake anywhere because you are the whole time just with all your hypervigilance sort of ebbing and flowing and dodging and ticking and whatever. And so no wonder I didn't know who to be after my mother died because I really wasn't my whole self while my parents were alive. I was inside a system, whether they wanted this or not, yeah. right? They didn't write it down. They didn't say, Megan, this is what we would like you to do. This is how I adapted yeah. to the stress of my system. And I would have told you, I have worked on this. I have solved these yeah. problems and they are gone. Yeah. And it meant, and again, I don't write so much about this in the book, but when I came back from treatment, it was a complete um, overhaul inside my family. Of like, guys, I, you know what? I can't operate in this way anymore. It's not even that I can't. It's that I don't want to. Yeah. I never wanted to do this stuff. Like it it continues to be an argument or a conversation inside my family. But one of the things that made me the most angry when I came back was making dinner. First of all, I'm not a good cook. I don't really want an extra job at the end of the day after I've worked for a really long time. But also, why should everyone in the house get food cooked for them but me? Why do I have to make my own food and everybody else's food? Yeah. I just, I mean, I understand that like for some other people, they love to cook, they whatever. Yeah. But to me, that felt like we have to renegotiate this. I never wanted to do it. Yeah. And I shouldn't have to do it every day. Yeah. So that was a big change. And and it there is a conversation. There is a conversation that we have inside our family about what do we have to do? And what do we want to do? Yeah. Yeah. And that you have to know, are they in alignment? Doesn't mean you're not going to have to do some things, right? That's life. Yeah. But what do you have to do versus what you want to do? And my husband has this phrase. I mean, he brought it into our relationship very early, which is, what do you want the weekend to look like? What would make a good weekend for you? Yeah. And I just love that question because it's like, well, I'd like to sleep in. And also I have to get the taxes done. Yeah. It leaves room for both. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. I so appreciated the way that you brought this awareness around codependency in this different way than we've traditionally think, including in my family, because, you know, addiction has been in my family's past. And so I always think about codependency as that sort of alanami and addiction related, which it is. And I think this notion that, Part of what can be so traumatic for us when we lose certain profound figures in our lives is if we've developed a sense of self so deeply entrenched and codependent and wagons hitched, as you said, to somebody else, it's a real, it's a real unraveling. And this time at the treatment center, you might have passed through that whole time at the treatment center if this person hadn't really called you on that. I mean, it doesn't sound like it because it sounds like they know what they're doing, but you'd been through many therapies before and that that really was the thing that helped you 
start to see um, this opportunity for you to get to know who actually am I? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that word opportunity seems really extraordinary, right? Like when I look back at the devastating events, also what I see is like, oh, you know, it's like that quote, you know, when the barn burns down, you can finally see the moon. Yeah. I don't know where I'd be now if I hadn't gone to treatment. So again, you know, I write really lovingly about that facility and the care that I got there um, because I really just can't imagine what would have happened if I hadn't been given the time to get my central nervous system back online so that I could function, but also the opportunity to be really intentionally reflective about like, whose life do you want to live? Yeah. Yes. I, I, I don't know how people, I just don't think that we have that many, that there are quiet enough quiet moments. No. And when you're really at odds, when you can't keep doing what you were doing, you're much more open-minded to some new way, some new path. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's exactly right. You know, there's a passage in the book I did want to read because I think I kept thinking about for all of us to, um, you know, we have this saying, everybody's grief journey is unique and only you can, you know, walk your grief. I think we've, we like that in some ways. I I always push back against that a little because I think it, it adds on to this sort of individualistic, like pull yourself up by your bootstrap kind of thing. I agree. And, you know, you said something in the book around sort of differentiating, like, yes, I have to grieve, but I don't have to do it alone, which I think is really different. And I'd love, if, if it's okay, I'd love to read this passage. I, it's starred in sticky note and underlined. Um, It's a bit of a long one, but listeners, you're in for a treat. Megan wrote, in past therapy, I'd learned to grieve. With my hand still on Dagger's face, I now contemplated my thoughts about being unsupported in childhood. Couldn't my parents have helped me? Wouldn't they have at least tried? What if my long-term childhood trauma was more about never learning how to ask for help and less on account of it not being available? Ooh, this is making me tear up. I heard my own voice repeating a therapist's favorite, feelings are not facts. I'd felt helpless and alone in grief as a child. I felt helpless and alone in grief as an adult. No one is coming to save me but me. But I was coming to understand that didn't mean it had to be me alone. The light in my chest remained. The way down the hill was easier than the way up. I know it makes me teary have you read it yeah yeah i think this notion that it's what's never learning about how to ask for help unless on account of it not being available i think so many of us carry these stories yeah about the times that people weren't there for us yeah and part of holding that story feels like there's some power because we're holding people to account and it's and I'm not here to talk about forgiveness or yeah. that's to each their own. But the powerful thing to me about the lesson that you learned in that treatment, which is, I think, a lesson for all of us to learn. I'm actually learning it in again in this season of my life as I navigate cancer is um, about learning. To, it's about the learning to ask for help. And yeah. you modeled that so beautifully in your life for your children, for your husband, for your friends. And you modeled it so beautifully for us in this memoir. Yeah. And um, 
I just couldn't be more grateful to you for mm. the memoir, for the conversation, for the friendship. Thank you for gifting this us, gifting this to us. It, it feels, I'm sure, like a gift to yourself, but it's really a gift to all of us. Truly, truly. Oh, that I mean, that is really meaningful to me, and I. You know, it's it's it is really overwhelming to hear someone else read what I wrote back to me. Um, but I I think the like the part that feels overwhelming right now is that even if I didn't know your grief story, I can yeah. feel it. Yeah. Right. And so like the thing about not having to be alone, because I actually do think everyone is alone yeah. in their loss. Of course. You know, you yeah. lost your husband in a way that no one else did. That is yours alone. Yeah. But, and there's some neuroscience behind this, which always helps me. Yeah. Actually, you know, Fred Rogers telling us to look for helpers. That is the most instinctive response that we have as humans is to collectively show up for each other. Yeah. Which actually, one of the things that I have always known about myself is that like, I feel safer. Yeah. Even crying in a public place. Yes. By myself. Yeah. And I asked that question to my clients, like, are you a shower crier or are you, would you cry over dinner with a friend? Yeah. And people are always like, huh, it's an interesting question. But I, I don't need somebody else to rescue me. Yeah. I just need to know that it's not, I'm not on the outside of humanity looking at falling yeah. off a cliff. Yeah. And so just someone being there. Yeah. And saying this makes sense or I see you. Yeah. I mean, this is, is really this notion of holding space. We need someone to hold space. And grief has become s- such an individual act in our modern, in modernity. And it's not meant to be. No, it's, it's not. Wrong. It's not meant to not be witnessed. Yeah, that's right. You know, my sign off for it, the show is I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. And that really came from my own. I mean, I do this work because I wasn't seen and I wasn't held and someone wasn't holding me in their heart. And I recognize throughout my own healing that that's really at the core of what we all need. Yes, sometimes we need practical help in the things, but mostly, primarily, we need to be on the inside of humanity, as you said. Right, because the reality is whatever it is that you create for yourself in your own grief experience that helps you yeah. is unique and specific to you. Yeah. And then I may have to go, like you may run to help you with your grief and I may sing to help me with my yeah. grief, but it is actually a natural process yeah. that we all go through. It's, it's, you know, it's like aging. It's like a yeah. developmental thing that's yeah. going to be part of our lives and part of our bodies and part of our history. And really what we want to do is say like, I, I, that is hard and I see it and I believe you're going to do it. Yeah. For one of the things that I always used sort of, you know, it felt to me the most powerful were these statistics about like, look, 97% of people get through grief and loss physically. They get through it. Like there's 3% out there that, you know, don't survive within the first two years, which is real. Yeah. But 97% of people survive it. Yeah. And that's a really amazing survival rate. And I think even though it doesn't feel like you have any idea how to get through it, yeah. If we just say, can you live through the next three hours? Yeah. And I'll just sit here. Yeah. Or I'll call you or I'll check in or I'll just send you, you know, one of the things I say to clients a lot is at some point today, something is going to sparkle at you. And I just want you to know that's me. Mm. I am sending that 
to you. Yeah. And that's the universe is is showing up for me to do that. So at some point today, something's going to flicker at you. And then they'll text me and be like, it did. And I'm like, I know. I know. I'm going to borrow that expression, if you don't mind. I love that. Something's going to sparkle at you. Yeah, I love that. We're all, I'm just revisiting um, Francis Weller's Apprenticeship of Sorrow course and re-listening to it again. And, uh, you know, he has this expression, we're wildly entangled. That's right. And, And we should be in grief. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. we should be, and yeah. and we've gotten we've gotten so far afield. Thanks. We're yeah. just, you know, your your company says like you get three days off. Like yeah. what? Yeah. You know the messages that we get about it, which is like it's a problem that you're having that experience, and please recover from it as quickly as possible. Don't get your grief on In- me. <laughs> right. Instead of like when you have a baby, yeah. people are like, "You're a mom now." Yeah. You're never not going to be a mom. Yeah. For the rest of your life, you're going to carry this responsibility and this gr- grieving is the same. Yeah. It's yeah. just the same. Oh, that's and, profound. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and maybe we like babies more because babies are cute. But imagine if what we said was, yeah, you're going to, you know, some part of you is going to do the job of grieving. Yeah. For the rest of your, your life. life. Yeah. And how can we, as your employer or your friend or your cousin, I mean, one of the easiest things, my phone is just filled with people's anniversaries. Oh, man, mine too. Mine too. Right, that's it. Like, yeah. and I, yeah. you know, I did it to my my friend, the writer, Matt Bays, the other day. I just said, like, I, I know today's the day. Yeah. I'm thinking about you and your sister, and I love you so much. And he was like, you have no idea what that meant to me. I'm it's like, such I a exactly simple. what it meant yeah, to you. because when people. I know exactly what it meant to you. Same. Our dear friend, yeah. our mutual friend, Melissa Gold, it was just hers. And I yeah. sent it to her and she said, that's right. I didn't know you knew. And I said, yeah. 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 Those simple acts. But yeah. again, that's all about I'm those acts aren't about doing something or assuming you have a problem or fixing you. Those acts are coming up Just alongside you and bearing witness. I yeah. see this part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I see you. And I know yeah, this to I be true because I've been here too. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's not that hard. You just yeah. put it in your calendar. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Oh, Megan, I feel like I know for certain this is the beginning of many conversations. I mean, you and I actually have plans to see each other. I know, soon. y'all. So don't be jelly. Say that. Don't, we shouldn't brag. But, but we're going to be in person together. Don't we be, are. Don't be too yeah. jelly, anyone. Anyways, but in the meantime, um, by the time you're hearing this, we will actually have seen each other and her book will be in bookstores everywhere. Um, end of the hour, therapist memoir, Megan Riordan Jarvis show notes. The link is in the show notes. It's on my socials. Do yourself a favor, pick up this book, wrap yourself in a warm blanket, a cup of coffee, and just be with it because it's, it's going to change your life in just the most beautiful way. So Uh, Megan, thank you you so so much for for joining me on grief is a sticky Uh, bitch. Thank you. Loved it. I can't believe I just did this show with you. Thank you so much. You are such a gift to everyone out there. Such a treat. Thank you, Megan. Bye, everyone. See you next time. I told you, my friend, Megan's insights from years of experience as a grief and trauma therapist combined with her own journey translates to an incredible story, both in our conversation today and in her beautiful memoir, End of the Hour, A Therapist's Memoir. Since our conversation, Megan and I did indeed get together to celebrate her book, 
along with some other incredible thinkers in the grief space, including the party's host, Claire Bidwell-Smith, who, by the way, will be joining us later this season. You can head to the link in the show notes today to pick up a copy of Megan's book. And don't forget, while you're online, you can pre-order a copy of my book as well, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. And then message me to get yourself that party book launch invite. Oh, and this season, I've committed to releasing the unedited video version of these episodes on my new YouTube channel at Lisa Kefauver MSW. So you can check that out there. Thank you for listening. And if you found it helpful, don't forget to share this episode with others who might need it too. If you do it on socials, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. And of course, if you loved it, leave a five-star rating and write a review wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Mike Moody at Permanent Record for the audio engineering support and Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for providing the music. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.